Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trend, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the July 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. Summer is flying. I hope everybody's getting some sun out there and enjoying, uh, you know, the best of uh, what the East Coast has to offer. Uh, Today, we have a few guests. Uh, Before I get to my first guest, I'll highlight my second and third guests later on the show for the paralegal minute it will be marquita joseph and nicole yakimic talking about a very interesting case that involved a captured on video death not a snuff film not anything crazy body cam footage of someone passing uh it's very very interesting and it did result in a more expedient resolution, to say the least. Uh, but we'll be going over that case with those two later on in the show. But my first guest today is uh, Senior Associate Christopher Major. Uh, anybody who's listened to this program has probably heard his voice plenty of times uh, throughout the year. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I usually insist on showing up about once a year, so so here we are. <laughs> right, so you hit that quota. Yeah, it's still July. I mean, I, I might I might uh, have you on by the end of the year with uh, how things are progressing very nicely for you. Uh, you know, specifically, we had a great win on your end uh, in, in a civil case that resulted in an extreme amount of windfall savings for our client. I hope everybody tuned in to the special webinar that was released earlier this week. If not, that's cmajor at loisllc.com for any information on how to access that webinar and see how great he is because uh, it's the kind of win that really exemplifies everything we do here at Lois Law Firm. Super excited. Cannot have a better guest this month based on the win that you provided to this firm, Chris. And I will note, um, you know, if you're tuning into the Third Fridays podcast, chances are you're a bit of a comp buff. So uh, lest you think that this is just a regular old civil win, uh, but for the knowledge of sections 11 and 29.6 and the concepts of workers' comp exclusivity, this win doesn't happen. So heavy, heavy, heavy overlap with uh, workers' comp. So if you're into uh, the New York workers' comp law, tune in for sure. Well, we want to drive listeners to the webinar. Yeah. <laughs> just just a comp joke, obviously. Okay, let's let's get into why why we're here today, Chris. And then I think that's it's specifically with respect to a still relatively current event in New York workers' compensation, and that's uh, the onboard prior authorization request system, more commonly abbreviated or known as PAR or PAR. And we know that what we do in a workers' compensation case in New York has overreaching effects outside of just the comp case. And that's where your specialty kind of kicks in. And specifically with respect to the health insurance matching program. Now, we've actually had a podcast on what that program is. But if you could be the briefest of brief, can you tell our listeners 
what the program is. Yeah. Um, briefest of brief, uh, a private health insurer pays for medical treatment that they thought the comp carrier should have paid for. Uh, the health insurance matching program, or HIMP as we're going to call it for brevity's sake for the rest of this podcast, is how they get reimbursed from the comp carrier. It's a procedure through the board to get paid for treatment they thought the workers comp carrier should have paid for to begin with. And, you know, in our experience, right, uh, HIMPs are ratcheting up. We've had more clients come to us and say, help us with this. How does this work? Uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah. And they're kind of... Um I've been banging the hemp drum from the mountaintops for a couple of years now because they're kind of nightmarish with the shenanigans that these health insurers can get away with in some instances. One particularly egregious thing that I'm just going to throw out there because I'm indignant about it is uh, the process of serving a hemp and then 30 days later sending you a thing saying you haven't responded to this and it is now payable, which is just not true because you have 90 days to object. But they know most carriers are just looking at these forms and going, I don't know what this is. Let me sign off on this payment. And uh, they're banking on that. So make no mistake, we're, we're recommending fighting every single one of these things tooth and nail. Um, you can just have thousands and thousands of dollars, especially in some, you know, big surgery cases that we denied, like maybe a lumbar fusion, which required prior authorization. Nice little segue into what we're talking about today. But especially in one of those where maybe a denial is upheld, you can have a bill for $100,000 that crawls through the door you know, a year after a Section 32 notice of approval comes out. I mean, it really is, you know, nightmare sounds a little like a little bit of an exaggeration here, but they are quite um, pesky. Let's let's put it that way. There's these, you know, posthumous demands for reimbursement coming across your desk when you thought your books were closed. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's very interesting because when you get to a point of having this, uh, you know, this side channel of, of, of a trend that's happening with, you know, I guess the indignancy yeah. <laughs> of, of what's going on. Uh, you know, I can tell that, you know, you're really on your game with these hemp uh, claims and requests. So uh, if anybody wants to go back into a really detailed approach on how we uh, you know, deal with these types of, of issues. There's certainly a prior episode of the Third Fridays podcast that we can give you. Uh, but let's focus on the current event being on board in part, right? So uh, we have now a situation where new medical treatment guidelines apply as early as two months ago that this now onboard system is now putting forth the option for providers to request confirmation that treatment exists within the guidelines, that treatment in excess of the guidelines are being uh, responded to in a timely manner, followed by orders of the chair immediately if these deadlines aren't met. Now, some of the deadlines remain the same. We're not going to get into the thick of like 15 calendar days or 15 business days, 30 calendar days, IME report, not an IME report. The idea is that inputting this system in place is necessarily going to result in more treatment being authorized because it's going to avoid or, or hopefully avoid the use of people like us where we say, wait, we have a legal defense to this treatment authorization. And the board, I believe, is trying to sidestep that, take it out of litigation by making people determine medical necessity only. 
Now, how would that affect a future hemp claim? Yeah, so um, <laughs> speaking of the righteous indignation about hemp, I can I can hear it in your voice, Christian, that that you're indignant about this uh, end run to these orders of the chair now. Well, now I'm more upset with myself that I used the wrong noun form. Of it. You're right, it is indignation. I said indignancy, and now I've lost all credibility with my own audience. You know, so, nobody would have caught that had you not pointed it out. Well, you know, I, I I'm, I'm an overanalyzer, if if anything. So. So we were looking at this, um, talking about it beforehand, and um, you know, so let's let's get the bad news out of the way first, right? Um, so we do have this sort of um, end run, looking at medical necessity now, taking sort of the legal defenses out of the equation somewhat, and of course, you know, we still have our defenses and we can still fight even under the the par system, but let's let's look at the potential negative impact here, uh, just from a hint perspective. When is a hemp most likely to pop up? When treatment was denied during the workers' comp claim. Right, because they're actually not going to the carrier, right? So the claimant is moving to private or some other insurer to pay for treatment that they believe that they need. Right. And, uh, you know, this is where these hemp's come from is a private health insurer ends up footing the bill for, you know, a denied lumbar fusion surgery and they go, well, wait a minute. This is a comp case. You guys should have paid for this. So, you Can know. We actually just take. I know this is actually now escalating above what we talked about, but why isn't that private health insurer denying the treatment bill? Like outright, if they believe it's part of the comp claim. Why do you think that that happened? Why do you think they're even paying for it in the first place? Because they have an obligation under the health insurance law to actually pay for the treatment, you know, if the if they have all the documentary evidence in support of it that they need. So, you know, they, they're not in the position that we are in workers' comp where you're, you're able to raise as a defense, you know, there, there should have been a priority of payment thing here. Um, and Isn't the documentation that they receive also sometimes inclusive of a history that this is a work-related accident? Which is their trigger to go out and get a match from the board eventually, yeah, in theory. Um, but, you know, it's it, it, my fear here, to a certain extent, is that the more denial opportunity we have, and part of the thing Christian and I were talking about is, um, is this going to open up um, more potential requests for confirmation of treatment? You know, confirmation that treatment is consistent with the guidelines. And, uh, you know, we hadn't seen a heck of a lot of MG1s before this, but, you know, is there going to be this new sort of... Um, attempted compliance by providers using this PAR system uh, and maybe perhaps an overuse. And, you know, my fear is that to the extent that this opens up any additional denials or denial opportunities for us as the workers' comp carrier, um, my fear is that that is going to result in more back-end hip exposure, right? The more bills we say no to, the more private health insurers probably footing the bill for those. Uh, you can bet the provider's looking to get paid from somebody. Uh, and then the more hemp is going to show up as soon as they get a match from the board. Ideally, they're getting a match. Again, here comes my indignation. Some of them just serve you blank hemp forms that don't even have the WCB. Don't get me started. But <laughs> <laughs> so one of my fears is, is, is this potential um, increase in opportunities to deny equals increase in opportunities for uh, hemp exposure. Another one of my potential fears, and this is this is somewhat unfounded, is that 
perhaps because the way the hemp rules and regulations are somewhat inartfully worded at the moment, you know, to accommodate the new MTGs and to accommodate the PAR system, perhaps the molasses in an igloo New York State Legislature amends the hemp rules and regulations, and then we get uh, a new effective date, which then gives every, you know, uh, health insurance carrier another year to serve hemp reimbursement requests, because that's one of the measures of timeliness. Now, outside of those two potential issues, um, I am sensing some opportunity here. Would, would you like to hear how? <laughs> well, I do. But if I didn't, I don't think I'd have a choice, given that that's the reason we're talking here today. So please... Go forward. So, number one, we do have this. Uh, we had, we do have these new MTGs that took effect back in May. Uh, so, one of the objections under the hemp rules and regulations six point four B eleven um, is uh, treatment inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines. We now have more than just neck and you know neck, mid and low back, knees, shoulders, etc. Um, you know, we now have MTGs. Um, you know, comprising basically every type of treatment you could think of, with the exception of some of the ones that we've already discussed uh, in our prior conversations, Christian. But um, we do have a whole bunch of new medical treatment guidelines where we can say this treatment was inconsistent with the MTGs. I would note that um, there's this interesting little quirk in the hemp rules and regulations where they tell you, you can't object based upon the following things. And one of the things that they prohibit an objection based on is a failure to request prior authorization for special services costing in excess of $1,000. Now, why am I bringing this up? In the old form of C4 auths, you know, the way this would play out is we'd have these health insurance carriers saying to us, no, 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 you can't object based on failure to file a C4 auth. See, it says it right here in the regulations. You can't do that. Thing is, the regulation cite to is a very specific portion of the workers' comp law, which references only special services costing in excess of $1,000. So we were able to make this rather, in my opinion, artful argument that, no, this doesn't prohibit objecting based on failure to file a C4 auth. This prohibits only C4 auths, you know, in excess of $1,000 objecting on that basis that they failed to file that. C4 auths for lumbar fusion or arthroplasty or things of those, you know, those procedures specifically requiring prior authorization under the MTGs. If you fail to requ request prior authorization for that, that's just plain old treatment inconsistent with the guidelines, which takes us back to the first objection I just brought up, which is an objection based on treatment inconsistent with the guidelines. So we do have these new MTGs and we do still have these specific procedures that require prior authorization. And, and that kind of goes in line with what we did discuss last year about HIMSS, which is if you can use it within the confines of the workers' compensation law, then there is an analogous argument to make in defending the hemp claim as well. So what you're saying is it actually, because and to make that analogy perfect, right, I'm looking at the implementation of new medical treatment guidelines for new body parts and new conditions as a benefit to employers because now providers have to request treatment that isn't now delineated within those guidelines. The guidelines also provide a standard of predictability to us to make us uh, realize that, hey, if you have this type of injury, then this can actually enable us to project future medical costs on a more confident basis because we know that the guidelines say that things are pre-approved. So if we can, uh, I guess, focus on the treatments that are outside those guidelines, 
then that would, I agree, that would definitely be helpful for future hemp defenses. 100%. And I, I would note that, you know, the rest of our defenses here under the hemp rules and regulations, despite the implementation of the PAR system, you know, just based on what we've looked at so far, uh, all of the same defenses still apply in my estimation. And as Christian just artfully pointed out, um, they're largely the same uh, defenses you would have if you received a bill on the workers' comp claim. Things such as there was a Section 32 that closed out medical treatment, or there is a Section 29 offset, one of my personal favorites for obvious reasons. Um, you know, the authorization for this treatment was requested and denied by the board or denied by the carrier, no review was sought or, um, you know, treatment in excess of the fee schedule, an objection you have in literally every single hemp demand you receive. If you're not objecting on at least that ground, you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, so all of these same defenses still apply. But one of the ones that I just mentioned that is, is kind of interesting to me is this concept of denied treatment, right? So we have uh, a specific hemp objection that says you can uh, object based on treatment for which authorization was requested and denied by the board, right? So a uh, board decision comes out saying the treatment is not authorized or was denied by the carrier, but no review of that denial was ever sought. You can object based on that ground, this, this denial by the carrier with no subsequent review by the provider or straight up denial by the board. So if we're afforded more opportunities to deny treatment, um, there is an opportunity here, not just in the MTG's objection to HIMSS, but there's an opportunity here uh, to object to HIMSS based on these increased denial opportunities we have, right? Not just on the new MTG sites, but based upon these uh, request for confirmation that treatment comports with the guidelines. You know, can you, and this is something interesting we're going to have to explore, but can you call a, a denial of one of these requests for confirmation, you know, you described it as the, the warm and fuzzy feeling these providers are looking for when they're rendering treatment. Can you call that denial a denial under the hemp rules and regulations? And, you know, the short answer is you'd better believe we're going to do it because we're as aggressive as possible. Well, look at it, look at it this way, right? I, I actually think it's even more cut and dry, right? You have, you know, what Chris is talking about is a specific PAR, a specific prior authorization request where the provider is asking the employer to confirm that what they want to do as far as treatment is within the guidelines. So if it's not, and we say that it that it isn't, and they don't appeal that ruling either to make it a variance or whatever, they're agreeing that it isn't within the guidelines. And therefore, if they render it, you now have that guidelines defense for him claim because they requested confirmation. They didn't uh, appeal the decision. They didn't turn it into a variance request or a different level of par. And now we have a situation where they render the treatment anyway. So it actually makes the the decision point or the argument even easier to digest because you're going in there and you're saying, well, what's the point of this PAR process anyway? They're going to request confirmation that it's within the guidelines. And when they're told they're not going to do it, they're going to treat anyway. I think it's I think it's a more it's one of the more common sense procedural arguments we can make as far as the landscape of what we do. Oh, it definitely expands the, you know, potential objection on the grounds that, you know, this treatment is outside the guidelines, you know, where we used to be able 
to get away with that in Hims was in a couple of very specific scenarios. You know, a no MG2 was ever filed, right? And we can just point to the type of treatment and say, this is not within the guidelines, hence it is outside the guidelines, right? You know, a sort of absence of equals the existence of argument. Um, and then there's also, we you filed an MG2 and we denied it, which means that you as the provider acknowledged that the treatment was inconsistent with the guidelines. We denied it and either you never appealed that denial or the board agreed with us and upheld the denial. So those are sort of these like limited instances where we could say, hello, here we have proof that this treatment deviated pretty much per se from the guidelines. What this is creating is an additional opportunity for us in as much as these guys might just be seeking this sort of, and these guys, I mean the providers, this sort of innocuous confirmation that, hey, just want to make sure everything I'm doing here is is right. You know, is 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 what I'm is this treatment really consistent with the guidelines? I'm pretty sure it is, but could you just make sure it is and just tell me it's okay? Can't you see that's the warm and fuzzy? <laughs> it's, like, it's like you you just want that piece of paper saying that makes you all warm and fuzzy that you can bill an insurance carrier for. Right. And I, I think you know there is an opportunity to be had here in saying. Well, you know, we denied it and now it's, you know, that's pretty much evidence. You know, you weren't sure. We said it was denied. It's not part of the guidelines. We've created an argument where one didn't exist previously. What I was getting at, um, in addition to that, is this argument that we can now also call that denial that we file saying like, no, you're incorrect. This is not consistent with the guidelines. We can call that a denial of treatment. And if they don't take it to that next step, right, where you said, oh, they're just going to turn around and either request further board authorization or, you know, they're just going to turn around and do the treatment anyway. We can turn that failure if they don't take that next step into another hemp objection that authorization for the treatment was sought, it was denied, and no review was sought. And that's the beautiful thing is we're not just having these expanded MTG objections potentially, potentially, but also these expanded objections just based on the concept of a denial of treatment for which authorization was sought and no subsequent review was sought by the provider or the board upheld the denial. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that really sums up like the opportunities, right? Uh, I did lead off with some pitfalls though, right? Because of these deadline oriented requests that result in orders of the chair. Now, let's say that happens and the treatments may be already rendered outside of the workers' compensation claim. Are we kaput are we dead on that future hemp claim if the treatment was rendered outside the workers compensation claim and an order of the chair comes down saying that the treatment should have been authorized is that the circumstance you're describing or it was authorized okay so we all, we still always have the remainder of our defenses under the hemp rules and regulations which you know is the timeliness argument did they get a match from the board within three years of the date of payment did they serve it within a year of the match date a year of the date of payment a year of ancr of acceptance a year of the effective date of the hemp rules and regulations is the treatment consistent with the fee schedule was authorization denied and upheld by the board or denied and not, no review was sought is it consistent with the guidelines is there a section 29 offset is there 
other, you know, so um, the other thing that's really kind of nice is I mentioned that the hemp rules and regulations prohibit a series of specific objections. They also give you a catch all. So there's if you've ever seen the hemp form itself, there's part one that the carrier, uh, the health insurer fills out. And that's the, you know, request for reimbursement. Then there's part two, which is the carrier's response, the workers comp carrier's response. What's nice about that is it lists one through 11 pretty much verbatim the objections that are specifically delineated in the hemp rules and regulations. And then there's a little box 12 that says other. And in the hemp rules and regulations, it says you can raise any argument that, you know, is potentially viable and not specifically prohibited. So what's a good example I like to use for these? Out-of-network treatment. Right. That's not something that is specifically contemplated by the hemp rules and regulations. They don't tell you that you can't object on those grounds, but it's not a specifically granted objection. But you'd better believe that it's one we're going to raise all the time or defective form and service. Section 325-6.3C says you have to include proof of ANCR and acceptance. You have to include standardized billing codes, yada, yada, yada. There's a whole paragraph on it. Failure to include that stuff, we've been making an argument that um, it is defective form and service of the hemp one. Again, not specifically delineated, not specifically prohibited. So we're never, in my opinion on these hemp's, dead in the water, especially since you always, always, always have that fee schedule objection at the end of the day. You know, if, if anybody else out there is listening and getting excited when Chris is citing statutes, you're not alone <laughs> because that excitement is being shared by yours truly. It's just such a pleasure to talk about the, the amount of professionalism that's oozing out of this place with respect to these types of things. And it's, it's absolutely incredible because if you look at the landscape of New York workers' compensation, Chris, hemp's are mostly a rising problem because most practitioners, and I'm talking at every stakeholder level, do not know all of the defenses that they possibly have to these things. And the level of service that we can provide, this full, full buttoned up service customized to your claim is exactly what we've been saying since September 15th of 2015, the day we opened our doors here and became the leading defense firm in New York, New Jersey, and now Connecticut. It's incredible that this kind of thing results in indignation, indignation of a particular insurance company that decides to skirt rules and try to make arguments that don't make sense, that now have become commonplace to your area of practice. And, you know, I think... Um that sense of indignation is born out of a sense of duty, right? Uh, I don't, I don't get offended, but for the fact that I'm getting offended on behalf of our clients. <laughs> so, right, you know, like I don't go home in my personal life and stare awake at the ceiling, going, "I can't believe these guys are doing this." But you'd better believe when my client is ponying out money on the back end, I'm going. This is illegitimate. This is nonsensical. I want to beat logic into these people. So, I mean, it's it's really it does speak to that level of professionalism and tailored service that we're that we're going for here. And I'm glad you brought it up. Well, if you look at it right, like here we are in this world where the new par and onboard system creates the opportunity for more treatment being authorized to affect hemp exposure down the road. So if we can button this up for all our listeners today, we're talking about a case where treatment may or may not be authorized in the workers' compensation claim. 
Irrespective of that, the claimant goes and gets the treatment and submits it to a private health insurer. That health insurer then finds out that it should be payable in their eyes through the workers' compensation claim. So their avenue is a reimbursement program, right, after they find a match. And it's not something that your garden variety claimant's attorney is going to litigate before a law judge, right? So most uh, practitioners in the industry aren't really expecting that until, bam, it hits you in the face because you have that $100,000 surgery you brought up later. So it is important. It is a nightmare when those cases come up, right? We should almost have those alerts up when... For example, wait, you, you got the surgery and you didn't bill me? Then we know that hemp request is coming in and that's going to come in hot regardless of whether we have a settlement agreement in place, right? And that's that's something I think we discussed um, the last time we went over hemp's more in detail was, you know, when can you see these freight trains coming down the road? And, you know, the warning signs are all there, right? You've denied a case, but there's a bunch of emergency treatment out the door. Or, you know, you've denied a whole bunch of MG2s or you filed a whole bunch of CA.1s, right? The warning signs are all there that, you know, every step you're taking, there is potential hemp exposure down the road. But, you know, the next level service your attorneys can provide is when you're getting in voluminous amounts of medical records via subpoena and you're painstakingly going over every single page of those and you go, wait a minute, this case is established to the right knee. Why is this guy getting the left knee arthroscopy on such and such date, right? And it's just this weird little thing that pops up somewhere in the medicals that you're filing it away in case there's a consequential claim later on. But the next level New York workers' comp attorney is looking at going, damn, these guys are going to file a request for a match with the board. All they need is just like some nexus of information, right? Like an approximate data loss to the data service and, you know, uh, matching SSN and match, matching date of birth. These guys are going to get a match on, a, on an unaccepted left knee arthroscopy that, you know, we didn't know about until we got these medical records. And so the next level service you can really offer knowing about these things is seeing it coming from that perspective. When you see that weird little outlier that unless you're really looking, you're not going to pick up on it. And it's in those types of situations we can tell our clients, yeah, you can close this out full and final section 32. But when they're asking you to accept the left knee as a part of that section 32, heck no. I ain't doing that. I ain't giving you a free ANCR on a site just because you're asking me to do it as part of settling this case. Because I know there's a left knee surgery out there that I'm about to get slapped across the face with a hemp for, even if they never submitted the board the bill to the board. Yeah, you know, I mean, talk about next level service. That service resides right here, right? So, uh, you know, Chris Major is uh, really the go-to for this type of stuff. Uh, I didn't mention it yet, but he does have a risk transfer handbook that was released this year for the very first time. Uh, you know, we talk about the inroads that we're making. This particular win that I'm speaking of, again, I please, please wish that you have looked at this webinar, the special webinar that we have posted earlier this week. If you haven't, please reach out to Chris so he can show you how great he is uh, because of the type of next level service that you're really going to get within these four walls. Anything else from you, Chris, before we go on to the next segment? Uh, just that since you mentioned the risk transfer handbook for anyone who's uh, curious and keeping score at home, 
Yes, there is a chapter on hymns in that, as it is a form of workers' comp subrogation, technically. So, uh, yeah, if you're looking at a little bit to brush up on hemp defense, that is, in fact, in the handbook. Feel free to reach out to me. I'll send you a copy. All right. So uh, thanks, Chris, for uh, coming on to the show. We'll be right back with the Paralegal Minute. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Third Fridays podcast. We're back for the Paralegal Minute. I uh, hope you like the theme music that uh, the lovely and talented John Grayson has put on for this segment. I think it's super cool. I have two new guests this month, Marquita Joseph and Nicole Yakimic. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so happy that you guys are here. Uh, we'll get that out of the way, right? Thank you for having us. Laugh, 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 right? Uh, so we have this really interesting case uh, that doesn't necessarily have to do with what happened in the courts, but really about what happened because of a situation that really none of us could predict. So Marquita, it's your case. Uh, Nicole and I, you know, we've just heard about it and it's become like almost like folklore. So can you set the stage for what actually happened in your case? From my belief, the um, claimant, he assumed that his wife was cheating on him. All right, so let's just stop there. (laughs) (laughs) The claimant assumed that his wife is cheating on him. Uh Like, we have listeners right now Mm -hmm. that are already now in. They're in, (laughs) right? The claimant assumed his wife is cheating on him. So, like, okay. Um, He went to the apartment, his his sister-in-law's apartment, um, to confront his wife. And when he got there, he found the superintendent and the sister-in-law and the wife was not there at all um so he stabbed the sister-in-law i believe he stabbed her. i don't think he shot it yeah <laughs> so he didn't he didn't find any evidence of cheating no. of adultery no and he goes and stabs the sister-in-law, the sister-in-law. yes right yes okay and then um very calmly stated by you by the way so props <laughs> that okay and then after that, he begins, the superintendent and him begin to get in a tussle with each other. Um, and they're wrestling on the floor. That's where it picks up on, like, the body cam footage when you, like, when you watch it. Um, right, so the police have been called. The police right. have been called. And then when the police get to the apartment, um, the claimant and the superintendent are wrestling on the floor for either the weapon or they're just trying, like, the claimant's trying to stab him or hurt him. And they're fighting. Um and then the cops shoot him. They didn't really like be like, "Hey, get off of him!" They just shot him. Boom. Oof. Yeah, yeah. Like, meanwhile, <laughs> I guess the listeners should really know uh-huh. none of this incident is the work accident. Yeah, right. right. Well, yeah. It's a totally different thing that just in the course of having an open claim, mm-hmm. this claimant just that. decides, you know what, my wife's cheating on me. I'm mm-hmm. gonna go commit some violence. Which also like confuffles me because like you, you state that like you have this injury and this injury and this injury but you were completely okay <laughs> you were completely fine to be like today's the day i'm gonna murder somebody like, i don't care if my elbow hurts anymore like today's right, the day right. i'm gonna go murder somebody. is the person he stabbed okay oh, or you don't know that because that's question. out of like i actually do not know that i'm the yeah. scope of what you guys are i'm handling. not too sure i don't think the sister-in-law made it, though. Oh, no. Well, yeah. you know, 
he's got his own problems, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're, you raise a good point, right? It's an open claim, and he decides that he's going to mm-hmm. do this, right? And, and we go from a thought of uh, my wife's cheating on me, adultery, and then I, do, I go there. I don't see anything happening, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to go. I'm going to mm-hmm. go after it. So, Nicole, like, I know it's not your case. You hear that when you or when you did hear of it, you know what was what were the thoughts that you had? Um, I think I heard of it from another attorney while I was a legal assistant. So even before I was a paralegal, and basically didn't know anything about workers' comp, and I was like, "Wow, this is really bad." And then they just kept explaining, like, "Oh, it gets worse. Oh, it keeps just getting worse." <laughs> and then I was like, "Wow, this is really bad." I think that was probably like one of the worst files or like one of the worst like background information that happens yeah. that you, to a that make you want to work on that file or, or no it, yeah because like, i don't get get away from it yeah because i also don't want to see the body cam footage i hadn't I'm, seen the body cam footage i'm i, I was just yeah. inquisitive i just i had to i had right. to see like how this went down how many times have you seen it i've seen it about Three to four times. Okay, so it's like... I, I do show a lot of people in the first right. <laughs> And that's how it becomes a thing, yeah. right? We we figure it out, and the whole purpose of this segment, obviously, that you know our loyal listeners are, are, are really cluing in on, is that you know you have your run-of-the-mill slip and falls, mm-hmm. right? You have your, you know, your regular injuries that happen in the course of employment, and then you have these yeah. that make you think... Uh, what? Yeah. What is going on? So, how do we know who called the police? Was I guess like I guess the sister-in-law was stabbed. Yeah, she was stabbed. And then the superintendent is now fighting with the guy. Yeah. So it probably maybe had a neighbor. To be a neighbor. Yeah. A neighbor. I do believe it was an apartment complex in New York. There's um. I looked. There's a New York Times article on it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Were you, are you okay to read that? <laughs> right. Because you don't yeah. want to watch it. It doesn't video. show the body cam footage of the person okay. potentially being like right. shot by the police. Well, I actually don't right. know how much the body cam footage shows. Right. So Nicole will read it in print. Yeah. Right. Maybe not like a digital New York Times article, though, that might have a link <laughs> to the video. <laughs> right. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's public knowledge. Body oh, cam yeah, footage? I guess, that's, I guess it could be, right? Hmm. But maybe not, depending on how... In it's this not, case, it's not it a high-profile case. No, not at all. Like we have it just from the course of what we do, right? Oh, no, okay. it's it, no the the thing. It's public. Oh, it is public. It really? Yeah. If you Google the claimant's name, it does pop up on the internet. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Is that how essentially we found it? Um, I'm not too Can't be sure. Like we, we're not just Googling the claimant's name like left and right. I'm not too sure. Because, or maybe we are. Uh, like I, I said, don't know. Like, we, I picked up the case. Like my attorney and I picked up the case um, after the whole after the whole incident, and we picked it up to the point where we were about to close it in the stipulation part. We had like one deposition left, and I googled it on my own. I was just like, after I heard the facts of the case. From another paralegal who handled it before, I was like, I gotta see or like read about. Oh, so this. you knew you heard about mm-hmm. like what had happened, mm-hmm. right? So the depositions were on something other than whatever mm-hmm. happened, right? And mm-hmm. then you Google it and you figure, oh, this is now public. Yeah, that this is this thing happened, and I, I don't even know. I mean, like, what if he didn't die? What? What do we do then? What, what do you do about your claim in general? Because like that's like 
like I said before, like that's a good reason for us to be like, okay, like how did you in, like go injured and decide to like do this active thing? It's not like it's like a sedentary thing. Like, right? You, that's you, effort. You, you you really put forth some effort, yeah, to do something mm-hmm. so heinous that now <laughs> the video of you doing so is now available for everyone. To yeah, see, right. Mm-hmm. Isn't also is it typical when a claimant passes away that the attorney will typically like let the adversary know that this person hey, has passed because doesn't change like i guess in theory the risk is that if they didn't yeah. right mm-hmm. and then our client keeps paying checks you know mm-hmm. what if they're cashed by the beneficiaries yeah, right? right like mm-hmm. oh like this is my brother my father i'm gonna cash these checks yeah whereas in this particular case the depositions you guys were doing were on like a posthumous schedule loss of use, right? Yeah. Eventually, right. because I know like MMI and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So the award is going to go to beneficiaries of the state, the estate, right? Right. So like, if the attorney doesn't tell us about it, then and those ca- checks getting keep getting cashed, you might have an issue there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's my, it's better off, right, to to say something that you know, right, so they. You know, you're not risking something in the future as a claimant's attorney. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do I know? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> never been a claimant's attorney. Never want to be one. Uh, Just asking hypothetically. Right. But I know it happens other times with like other cases and people pass away. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Like before, I had a case where, like where well, like, sometimes the claimant's attorney doesn't know, right? Like, oh, really? Like, you know, hey, oh. I've been calling. I've been calling. I, I don't know. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, the employer, right, that we represent may have a coworker that knows things like, Oh, can you check up on so-and-so? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and they find out, Oh, he did. He's dead. Yeah. yeah. But like, um, for, I was saying that like I had a case where like he died on the job. So like, that's like, right. Completely so different. Have a than... work related death. Versus yeah. Just yeah. Death by adulterous right. murder. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And what I was saying before, right. He, it, it it's like, what if he, didn't die yeah right then he's alive with like this intervening event that everybody knows about and it might actually be harder for him to collect benefits because everyone's just like well how does that work if a claimant goes to prison oh yeah that was my other question that i asked the other like handling attorney on this file yeah so there's a statute Mm -hmm. that says that if you are uh, in prison for a felony, then you cannot collect workers' compensation. Oh, okay. Kind of makes sense. Because <laughs> yeah. The idea is you're collecting benefits because you can't work, right? But if you're in prison, you're, like, the that's the reason yeah. why you can't <laughs> yeah. work yeah. because you're in prison, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times, you know, when that happens, uh, a claimant's attorney will be forthright. The first episode of the Paralegal Minute mm-hmm. months ago with Morgan and Emily, mm-hmm. their case was about a guy who was a drug mule. Oh, whoa. Wow. So clearly from the reactions, you guys listened. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot, Yeah, guys. it was a great podcast. Yeah, thanks for supporting me. <laughs> yeah. I always knew you guys were my friends. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so they their case was a drug mule where we didn't even find out until the claimant's attorney told us. Like, mm-hmm. hey, he he was arrested. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was kind of similar to you. They mm-hmm. did like the, the Googling, mm-hmm. like, 
oh, that's what he was arrested for? Yeah. He was a drug mule? Okay. And then we start talking about it. It's like, oh, well, it's, is that work? Are you working? <laughs> Are you making money? No. You know? Yeah, it's like Uber Eats. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, nah, it's reduced earnings. <laughs> right? So uh, in this case specifically, it's, it is unfortunate, right? We've been laughing a lot about it just mm-hmm. because it's insane. Yeah. But, you know, we should say, you know, we're not, we're not like saying this is unfortunate. We're yeah. certainly, uh, you know aware of the fact that this is truly, truly an unfortunate circumstance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is one of those situations that you just don't think it's going to happen until it happens, until it happens right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in a weird way, like I said, if he had remained alive, mm-hmm. then you'd have all these things that you were talking about, Marquita, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's able to do these activities, which yeah. means maybe he shouldn't get any awards mm-hmm. uh now he has an intervening event like what you know he like what you know if he's shot and he survives is his reason for working because of our work accident to, to the elbow <laughs> yeah or, or is he or because he, he was shot, shot. yeah right? maybe some nice apportionment oh, <laughs> right? like, how do we you know and it just creates this weird situation where I think maybe sometimes claimants think that it's like, oh, this is just this is just a thing on the side that I'm getting these checks mm-hmm. every week. I can go about my life and think that my wife is cheating on me. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't know, stab her stab her sister, presumably, right? Yeah. It's not like it's not like she was cheating on him with her sister. Why does a sister in law get stabbed? I right. I think he just took his rage out on whoever was there. Yeah, maybe and it like, just happened to be the sister-in-law. Heat of the moment. We're like, but, you know, why why do that? Like, does he think the superintendent's cheating? Is that the, the, the guy that's involved? I, I have no idea. I don't know that answer. Right. I'll do some more Googling. <laughs> like, New York yeah. Times article. Okay. It's pretty good, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, so. you know, uh, across my heart, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, because you never know, I yeah. don't think I've been cheated on. But if I ever found out, I'd be like, okay, I'm out. Right. Right? Like, you know, like the normal human response. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know. I just feel like I wouldn't leap to the threshold. You know, statistically, the person who's like the highest chance to kill you is your spouse. That's super deep. (laughs) Uh, But also, you don't know if there was other factors of course, of him, like true. killing the other person, like it could have, like they could have just said, "Oh, it was because of like cheating." When it could have been like maybe other issues that we don't know about. Also, oh, good yeah. point because we're not privy were to that. Who are the living witnesses to tell right, this story? Exactly. Not him. Could he could be the hero? Mm. <laughs> maybe you know. We don't know what the superintendent was doing. Or okay, the other just thing. to get <laughs> just to get a little off topic. So you said that the person most likely to kill you is your spouse, right? Yes. So my cousin got married. In October, mm-hmm. and so his brother, my other cousin, is doing the best man speech, and you know he does all the stories about all the these you know like things that you know how they're great together and things like uh-huh. that, right? And he's like, I just want to raise a glass and have the bride and groom look into each other's eyes, <laughs> yeah. and he goes, "You are now looking at the person that is statistically most likely to kill you." Yeah, 
Yeah. So be nice. <laughs> and I was like, I brought the house down. Everyone was laughing. It was insane. And it has nothing to do with this podcast, but I just wanted to riff on whatever you just said. <laughs> most likely to do it. Because it's true. I hope we I hope we still remember this claim. This is like an all time no, fact. We pattern. have to. Like, right. right. And it's almost it's close to settling, right? Yeah, we're just waiting um on survivorship, which is also really funny because his wife is taking the money. Oh, the person who's <laughs> oh yeah, oh, the yeah, person yeah. who is allegedly cheating on him is yeah. now benefiting yeah. from this. Yeah, um, that, I mean, but that that's opens like opens up a whole new can of worms that I don't yeah. even know if we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna say? I was like, it's almost like justice, like justice. But what if what if the <laughs> what if the claimant was the hero? You said you said I don't know what the superintendent was up to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was also more looking at like the intent of murder and like Sure. I don't know. Sure. I took my eyes off the ball there. <laughs> <laughs> right. He did he did have a murderous intent. Yes, right. he did so, murder. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well uh, My thing is also what if he succeeded and he, like he did harm his wife. Right. Where like let's just say he didn't. Like he just stabbed the person. Right. right? That and, also could be a felony to put him in prison. Yeah. Right. It, that's what I'm saying. Like, him passing away helped his beneficiaries in that process. Yeah, that mm. is true. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Well, I think we've talked enough about body cam footage, adultery, and uh, public body cam footage, by yes, the way. It is cool. uh, we know that Nicole will never see it. <laughs> uh, but... Even though these things do happen, right? I think it, it makes uh, more of a play for what we do in our regular lives, right? Mm -hmm. I think one of the th key things that you mentioned, Marquita, today is not so much the, like, I guess the juiciness of this fact pattern, yeah. but like when we hear about it, we're going to do those investigation tactics for claims to make sure that we know everything we can possibly do. And I think that's one of the pillars of professionalism and service. So what was all lost in body cam footage, adultery, mm -hmm. uh, stabbing, <laughs> murdering by the uh, you know someone else, right? How do we get to a point of making sure that everything gets the right amount of attention? So I think that was a great way to tie it up. I actually am proud of myself for the way that I did that. Yes. What do you guys think? It was so good. Nice. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, since you guys didn't listen to Morgan and Emily's podcast, do you guys think you'll listen to this one? Yes, I will. No, there was a pause. <laughs> there was a pause. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Uh, we're we're cool. We're cool no matter what. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Uh, Marquita Joseph, Nicole Yakimic, uh, and for Christopher Major from segment one, this is Christian Cison reminding you to defend from day one.